Welcome to this month's special programming series, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD XM157. Our guest today tells us that more than $40 billion in 40 years have passed since the official launch of the war on cancer in this country. We remain focused on finding and curing cancer instead of controlling what causes it. Identifiable steps to significantly reduce or even eliminate many cancer risks have been overlooked or actively suppressed out of fear and in favor of profit. The result? Over 10 million preventable cancer deaths in the last 30 years. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Davis. Dr. Davis heads up the country's first center for environmental oncology at the University of Pittsburgh's Cancer Institute. Honored for her research and public policy work by various national and international groups, Dr. Davis is Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health and an expert advisor to the World Health Organization. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Davis. Thank you very much, Dr. Lund. Now, I understand, Deborah, that you've wanted to tell this story for a long time. Indeed. I, I first tried to write this book about 20 years ago when I was working for the National Academy of Sciences, and my boss at the time said it better be a really good book. I didn't quite understand what he meant, and he explained that given what was going on in the country at the time, and we were in the midst of what we now call the Reagan-Bush Revolution, a book that was highly critical of the way the medical industrial complex had conducted research on cancer wasn't likely to make it possible for me to continue working at the National Academy of Sciences when I was finished. Now, actually... My boss, Frank Press, was right. It would not have been well-received if I'd written this book at that time. And other people have pointed out the limitations of the war on cancer for some time, but the time has changed right now, and that's why I'm able to talk to you about it. Okay, so you haven't been fired from your current job. On the contrary, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is completely behind what we're trying to do because they recognize that we've got to invest more in preventing cancer. We've made tremendous progress now because we can treat and cure many forms of cancer, We have 10 million cancer survivors, but we still have to figure out how to prevent the disease from developing, and that's going to require more emphasis on keeping people away from the things we know cause cancer. Well, I was shocked when I read your book, and I think my husband has a permanently bruised side from me elbowing him every five pages. I read this, oh, you have to listen to this, you have to listen to this. So tell us, let's start with which cancers are on the rise? Well, a number of cancers that are on the rise include esophageal and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, childhood cancer, testicular cancer. And one of the things it's important to realize is even if cancer isn't on the rise, and some of it is, the fact is that most people who get cancer do not inherit the disease. They get it because of things that happen to them in the course of their lifetime. And this means that we can do more to prevent it. And when we started the war on cancer in 1971, we weren't thinking about prevention at all. Now, let's go back a bit, and I was interested in your book when you talk about the Nazis and what they knew that it seems like it took us many years to find out. It wasn't just the Nazis. I was astonished to learn that in 1936, the world's leading cancer scientists traveled to Brussels where they met for quite some time and exchanged information about the things that they knew then caused cancer. And among the things that they knew caused cancer back then were things like benzene and synthetic hormones and X-radiation, and sunlight, and TARS, and hydrocarbons. So the question becomes, what happened? Why was it possible that the world's leading scientists agreed that these were causes of cancer in 1936, and yet we didn't act to control them in any serious way? In fact, we didn't even act to start to control tobacco, really, until the 1990s, 
although the hazards of tobacco were known well before the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health in 1964. And did the Nazis know about the dangers of tobacco, even in the 30s? Well, as I point out in my book, the Nazis did the first research and created one of the world's first centers to study tobacco. Another was in Argentina. They did research on tobacco. They did it in animals. And they did the first studies confirming that tobacco increased lung cancer in men and women who smoked heavily and in men and women with certain occupational exposures. So what happened to this research? Why did it take us so many decades to get rolling on it? Well, you know, one of the things that's hard for us to imagine nowadays is that there was life before the Internet. (laughs) And there was a time when information was not only not shared, but it remained locked in the closets and cabinets of those who had it. And unfortunately, that was the way it was with respect to the work of Angel Rojo, for example, who studied workers who spent time outdoors, who warned, by the way, against the dangerous habits of sunbathing. He warned about that in the 1930s. But his work and that of others like Cook and Kennaway at London's Royal Cancer Hospital, who found that regular exposure to estrogen produced mammary tumors in nail rodents, all of that work was held privately and not widely distributed. And we didn't have automated literature searches. We didn't have search engines. And it was possible for information to remain locked up. How did you find it? Well, a very enterprising friend of mine who's a librarian at uh, Teton County Library in Wyoming told me that if I could give her a reference, she'd track down the book. And she found the one copy that remained in Brussels in a library. And it was published in five languages. And I've actually put on our website archival copies of the original documents that I used because I realized when I got them that this was a very valuable piece of information. This wasn't just speculation. This was detailed studies, line drawings of head and neck tumors that were produced after exposure to sunlight and hydrocarbons, and information about the dangers of a number of things that had really been forgotten. So we've created an archive with the University of Pittsburgh Library so that researchers will be able to access these documents. And tell us the website. It's preventingcancernow.org, and that's the source through which you can find some of the key documents for each one of the chapters. And then the University of Pittsburgh Library itself is in the process of mounting the archive through their medical library. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Davis. We're discussing her book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer. Dr. Davis, let's switch gears a bit and talk about aspartame. That seems so innocent. It seems like it's in everything these days. But what have you found about it? Well, the first thing we have to say about aspartame or NutraSweet is that we're using more of it than ever before. There are 200 million people in the United States using it, and we are more obese than ever. Now, there are many things that contribute to obesity, including the fact that scientists now understand there are chemicals that act like obesogens that actually stimulate obesity. But the thing that's remarkable about aspartame is that in 19... 70s, when the original safety data were submitted to the FDA, every review panel that ever looked at them said that they were inadequate. And in fact, in 1977, the general counsel of the FDA sought a grand jury indictment of the G.D. Searle Company for fraud because of the quality of the information that had been submitted on the safety of aspartame. So how is it that it's still in everything? Well, the same year that the general counsel sought a grand jury indictment, the company hired Donald Rumsfeld as its CEO. He was not hired for his pharmacological expertise. (laughs) He was hired because he was a very shrewd politician. And one day after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president in 1981, the G.D. Searle Company filed for the first approval of aspartame. Now, even though every scientific group that had ever reviewed it had recommended against approval, 
Five months later, the approval was granted. Now, it's been out for a couple decades. Do we see problems as a result other than obesity? It's very difficult to evaluate in any large-scale human population the effects of a single substance like NutraSweet because we do not have controlled experiments underway. And that's where epidemiology remains a very limited tool in its capacity to tell us about the current or future pattern of things that we're using, like aspartame. But what we do have is some new data that has been generated by one of the world's most well-respected research institutions in Italy, the Ramazzini Foundation. And what the Ramazzini Foundation has reported in two separate studies is that animals exposed prenatally or postnatally to aspartame throughout their full lifetimes that are allowed to live until their natural lifetime ends at three years develop significant tumors in the third year of life. Now, the reason that's important is the classic animal bioassay ends at two years. But when these animals were allowed to live to three years, 50% of those with the prenatal exposure developed tumors of certain types associated with their aspartame ingestion. And the reason that's important for you and me is that as we live in an aging society, more and more of us will, in fact, reach our 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. And an animal study ending at two years is comparable to killing everybody at age 60. But when you let the animals live to the third year, that corresponds, in fact, to the last third of human life, people reaching in their 80s and 90s. And right now, we're basically in the midst of a vast, uncontrolled experiment because we know that there are 200 million people regularly using aspartame, and we have no way to evaluate its impact on human health for people until we wait until those are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then try to figure out whether aspartame was one of the things that they used. And it becomes like trying to solve a simultaneous equation that you're in the middle of. Isn't the animal data enough to get it pulled off the market? Well, it's a very interesting challenge, even though the FDA right now is hampered and understaffed and underfunded. The way the law reads, if this FDA agreed that these new data that are published in the peer-reviewed literature constitute proof that aspartame induces tumors in animals, then they would have to withdraw its approval. So right now there are very active efforts underway, efforts not just in the scientific community, as you would expect, but also in the public relations community Mm -hmm. to try to discredit the research of the Ramazzini Foundation and come up with explanations for why their approach shouldn't be considered valid. As you know, our show is listened to by healthcare professionals, mostly physicians. What do you think our listeners would be most surprised to hear about cancer? They would be very surprised, I think, to learn the extent to which epigenetic factors are now widely understood to be so important. And even though the classic theory of cancer, the two-hit model, the DNA, presumes that once you have damage to DNA and it accumulates, then you are going to get cancer, I think there's growing evidence that epigenetic factors are very important, whether the work of the agouti mouse, where mice, which have the same genotype, have been influenced to develop fundamentally different weight, size, and even coat color, depending on the diet that the mother is given. And prenatal exposures drive whether or not the mouse will become obese, dark, light, fat, or small. And yet it's the same gene with different factors. So I think the evidence for the epigenetic revolution is upon us right now. Another example of that may be coming from the data on hormone replacement therapy, about which there continues to be a lot of important discussion. But one of the things that some have suggested is that the decline in postmenopausal breast cancer incidence, which we have been seeing in the past few years, is associated with the drop in the prescriptions for HRT. 
Now, there's some debate about whether that's the case, but if it is true that a drop in prescriptions for HRT is associated within two years with a decline of breast cancer, and I have to stress if it's true, then this is telling us that hormones work as promoting agents very late in the process. And if you pull back that promoting exposure, even with initiated tumors, you're not going to get cancer. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Deborah Davis about her latest book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunn. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, as we feature a special series, Focus on Cancer.